Last week, Lee opened our series in First and Second Timothy by setting the historical context. And we're going to review that for a minute in case you weren't here or in case you slept since then or you got too excited the Razorback gang yesterday and forgot about church. Uh, Paul's letters of advice to Timothy. It's just two letters of a mentor giving advice to a young pastor about how to lead a church in a very interesting city in the first century called Ephesus. If you remember, Timothy was Paul's disciple who had been with him earlier on some of his missionary journeys. God told us that the large metropolitan, or Lee told us that the large metropolitan Roman city of Ephesus is it my imagination or is this echoing? Yeah, I think I better get another microphone. I'm not liking this one. Testing, is that better? Okay, sounds a little bit better to me anyway. It's not ringing my ears. Well, he told us that the large metropolitan Roman city of Ephesus in the first century was even more morally decadent and the culture was even more depraved than most of the other large population centers in the Roman Empire, which is saying a lot. It was also a very serious economic hub, strategically located on a major trade route. Sexual immorality was ingrained in the culture and actually part of the worship at several large pagan temples in the city. The temples were actually holdovers from Greek culture that the Romans had embraced wholeheartedly. The chief temple was to the goddess Artemis. Lee talked about that last week. The Roman name for her was actually Diana. She was worshipped throughout the Greek world and most of the Roman Empire. Her origins actually dated back to pre-Greek civilization, and she was associated with a number of things, especially fertility. Her temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, obviously, if you think about it, the introduction into this extremely sexually immoral culture of, I'm going to use some big words, a monogamous, heterosexual Christian value system or ethos is going to cause significant friction. Lee pointed out, then in the first century, as has been the case for the last 2,000 years, a monogamous heterosexual Christian ethic is the ethic of the New Testament and of Christianity. As Christianity spread in that city, and it started to spread pretty rapidly, it even caused economic upheaval as evidenced by a riot. Go check this out later documented by Dr. Luke, the historian, in Acts 19. Trying to live out God's ethos in a demonically influenced and sexually immoral culture was not without problems and challenges in the first century. Do you get where I'm going? And it's not without problems today in our culture. Paul's letters to the early Christian church, as Lee pointed out, contain several lists like the one in 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 11 that we went over last week, if we could pull that back up. Here's my point. God has a value system. 
He gives us very specific to-dos and to-don'ts about how to live life on planet Earth, regardless of the century or regardless of the culture. There are several lists of to-don'ts in the New Testament. Now, none of these lists of to-don'ts are completely exhaustive or exclusive, as Lee pointed out. So if your sin's not on there, don't think you've dodged the bullet of God's judgment because it's not on there. In addition to the one that's on the screen in 1 Timothy, there are almost identical lists in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Sexual immorality is mentioned specifically in all three lists, by the way. So what we're talking about now, new term for you this morning, is cultural dissonance. Cultural dissonance. Dissonance with the historical Christian sexual ethic. I'll point out again the obvious. Regardless of what you read today, and you can read a lot on social media, sexual immorality, according to the ethos of the New Testament writers, has always included any sexual activity, heterosexual or homosexual, outside of one man and one woman in a covenant relationship intended for life. No one can seriously argue or intellectually defend any other interpretation when the New Testament is taken as a whole. That has been the interpretation of Scripture by the Christian church for 2,000 years. The biblical ethic does not fit the so-called new morality in Western culture today. Now, that doesn't mean that you and I aren't called to deeply and seriously look at those who embrace the new sexual morality or who fail in any area that we're talking about this morning. Many of us, me included, have failed in this area at some point in our life. And we're all called to love people regardless of their sin issues and to treat them lovingly. But please, please, don't try to reframe the biblical ethic to fit the current culture. It just won't work. It didn't work in Ephesus, and it won't work here today. In Paul's sin list, moving on, he included two other words not related to sexual sin at all. The words were unholy and murderers. Now, I want you to think about Paul pinning these words for a minute you know it reminded him of where he'd come from. He was once a blasphemer or an unholy person, a synonym in that case for unholy, who had denied the deity of God's own son when he came to earth and walked around in his first century Jewish culture fulfilling prophecy after prophecy about what Messiah would do. He denied the deity of Christ. He was a blasphemer. He admits that. We're going to see it this morning. And he was definitely a murderer, a violent and vile human being, almost demonic in his attempts to stamp out Christianity by imprisoning, torturing, and executing Christians, particularly Jews who were converting to Christianity. So out of that painful remembrance of Paul's past, he's going to burst into a short testimony. 
It's not a long one. He gives lengthy testimonies that are recorded several places in the book of Acts. This is a very brief one, a short testimony, reminding all of us this morning of the reasons that Jesus incarnated himself to start with. The reason he left the throne of the universe and came to earth as a human being was to redeem or buy back the lost race of Adam's and Eve's descendants from slavery to sin and immorality of any type and what the Bible describes as a feudal way of life passed down to us by our ancient ancestors. That feudal way of life, if we don't embrace God according to his terms, will end in eternal separation from God. God came to earth as Mary's baby growing. Grew up probably as some type of blue-collar tradesman and apprentice. Came out at about age 30 as a Jewish rabbi. Presented himself to his Jewish brethren as the Messiah. And he did all that to save sinners like you and me. So now, that's the setup. I want us to hear it from the old apostle himself from his own mouth. Turn with me, if you have a Bible, to 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. If not, you can look on the screen. After having reviewed all that Paul wrote about in the first 11 verses, here's verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. What he's simply saying is, I'm thankful that I get the opportunity to spend the rest of my life pouring out my life in service to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who bought me with his own blood. A very simple statement. Verse 13, he goes back and remembers his past and confesses it publicly. And we're still hearing it this morning, 2,000 years later in a gym in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Even though I was once a blasphemer, denying the deity of Christ, and a persecutor, and a very violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. God specifically showed him an extreme mercy by appearing to him personally and speaking to him audibly. A very unusual encounter. Not many people then or today have such an encounter. The grace the undeserved favor, the incredible blessing that he got by God appearing was poured out on him abundantly in extra measure, he said, along with the faith and love that often come with grace, always come with grace, that are in Christ Jesus. And then he states what was already established as kind of a maxim of the church in that day. Just a very simple statement, an orthodox statement, a simple doctrine. It goes like this. Paul says, and he says five times he uses these words. Here's a trustworthy saying in all of his letters, and this is one of them. Here's a trustworthy saying, Jim, that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a simple but profound thought. God wrote himself into his own story as the rescuer, the great lover who would lay down his life for his bride. That's a profound thought. And speaking of sinners, Paul says, I'm the worst. This is not hyperbole. 
He's not exaggerating. He's saying, I'm worse than all of those people that go to the pagan temples and do unspeakable things that they call worship. I'm worse than them. I'm worse than anyone else in that sin list I just described because I was attacking personally the bride of Christ and torturing and killing God's children, God's kids. That's what he says about himself. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience or his great love or his great mercy or his great grace as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. If Paul can be saved, he's saying anybody can be saved. And that includes the worst sinners on that list. Anybody can save. And now what's his response to those profound thoughts, worship and praise? Just a one-sentence doxology. We're going to praise God again in a few minutes. You're going to hear a powerful testimony when I'm done. But right now, just a one-sentence doxology. Now to the king eternal, Paul says. He bursts out in ecstatic praise, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. And that's my five or six little verses I get to share with you this morning. Just a few more thoughts to expound on the passage before we hear a couple of testimonies. God's offer of salvation first is based on faith and involves always repentance. In one sense, it's a universal offer, as Paul pointed out. John 3.16, open to all who seek. And yet it's a very personal and intimate offer. It has to be accepted personally. A personal invitation to enter into a lifelong love relationship with the most powerful and wonderful being in the universe, Jesus Christ. God saves poor people. He saves rich people. He saves people from every ethnicity, people with all kinds of issues. That's our word for sin today. Murderers like Paul, religious people like Martin Luther, slave traders like John Newton. The word slave traders was in that list, wasn't it? the author of Amazing Grace, and wealthy, crooked politicians like Chuck Colson. Faith in Jesus' atoning sin sacrifice of himself can save, as the song goes, to the uttermost. Anyone, including you and even me. Our faith response to that offer of salvation, as Lee pointed out last week and again this morning, should begin a lifelong journey towards becoming more Christ-like. Big word for that. Big religious word is sanctification, we call it. Participating with God in aligning our value system with his value system. Aligning my life, Jim's life, Jim's words, his thoughts, his behavior, his deeds, how he spends his money, who he hangs out with, how he spends his free time. Aligning those things with God's value system that is clearly set forth in the New Testament and modeled by Jesus when he came. And that value system is always to some degree, and I hate to keep saying this, but we need to hear it this morning. Contra mundum was the word that the early Christians used. I've used it before. It simply means 
against the grain or against the world's system, the grain of the world's culture, which, by the way, not a popular thought, is being influenced and manipulated by the ruler of this world system, Satan. By the way, that's the way Jesus addressed Satan. That's what he called him, the ruler of this world. Remember when he came to tempt him? He said several things to him. One of the things Satan said to Jesus was, the kingdoms of this world is mine. I can offer them to whoever I want. You know what? Jesus did not dispute those words. In fact, he validated them. But he came for what reason? To strip the strong man of his kingdom, to tear it down and take it away from him. And he did it according to a script he had written that required the blood of a perfect sacrifice, meaning himself, to buy back the fallen race of Adam. What Adam gave up in the garden, Jesus came to reclaim. But the ruler still of this world system, those who don't acknowledge Jesus, is still influencing this world system. He's the head of an organized system of spirit beings that oppose God and his work here on planet Earth. Yes, this is a supernatural religion. He and his allies are your enemy. They're not your friend. You were born with a sin nature. You inherited, and so was I. And Satan wants to manipulate that sin nature, as John points out and Jesus points out, to steal, kill, and destroy you and all your relationships. That's the harsh reality of life on planet Earth. You and I are simply sinners in need of a Savior, as Paul was. And we need to be saved, not only from eternal punishment, but from a futile, wasted way of life again handed down to us by our ancestors. And it's saved to what? Into a disciplined, one of the fruits of the Spirit, and healthy lifestyle that bears fruit. Fruit in the New Testament, I always like to remind you of this. I remind myself of it. It means three things. First of all, it means character change. God picked me up. Gosh, I'm 70 years old. Uh, can I do math? 48 years ago, out of the garbage dump I've made of my life and chose to breathe spiritual life in me, and he asked me to change. He asked me to change. And I'm telling you, I'm not near perfect. Anyone that knows me knows that. But I'm a heck of a lot different than I was 48 years ago. And God wants to do that for all of us. He wants to work in a redemptive way throughout our lives. Fruit means change, character change in you and I. Number two, fruit means, as Lee pointed out, good deeds. We were saved to serve. Paul, thank God that he could pour out his life unto death serving Jesus Christ. We're called to serve. And thirdly, fruit means a life that causes other people around you to flourish and grow spiritually. I've told you in a sentence or two my story. I'm not going to share the details of my testimony this morning. I've done it before. I've got some other testimonies I want you to hear. First one is from church history. It's a little different than Paul's and the one that's going to follow this testimony. About a guy by the name of Thomas Building, if we could pull up his picture this morning, He's not dressed to go to a Razorback game, obviously. Looks a little weird, a little different. 
reason is he was born in 1495. His nickname was Little Milne because he was small in stature. He graduated from Cambridge with degrees in law and theology, but neither his studies nor his ordination brought him the mental, the spiritual, and the emotional peace that he was seeking till one day he was just reading scripture and he was reading this passage of scripture that I'm expositing this morning. And he hit verse 15, if we could pull that up. And he jumped off the pages at it. He had what I would call today a rhema moment. The word just got hold of him and came alive in him. And the Holy Spirit made Paul's words come alive. Jesus came to earth to save sinners. Built and he read it, and suddenly he got it. Or rather, another way of saying he is, the power of God's great affection for him got hold of him, and it changed his life. What degrees and teaching and learning couldn't do, the Word of God did supernaturally in an instant. Bilney soon became a central figure in the Reformation. He was arrested multiple times for preaching the gospel that had changed his life, but he couldn't quit. He was eventually burned at the stake for his faith in 1531 at the ripe old age of 36. But his most famous convert, Hugh Latimer, became the most prominent preacher of the English Reformation. Bilney bore fruit. And he too died at the stake in October of 1555 because of his faith in this gospel I'm preaching to you this morning. When you and I fully embrace this gospel, and I mean fully embrace this gospel, we're standing in a long line of men and women whose lives were radically transformed by the power of this gospel of grace. From dying thieves on crosses to murderers like Paul to prostitutes like Mary Magdalene or one of the other Marys. I like the one Jesus cast several demons out of. To slave traders like John Newton. And even Cambridge lawyers can get saved. He's still converting significant sinners today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about one. More about a specific sinner that Jesus got hold of. Then I'm going to let her come up here and finish the story herself. She grew up in a Christian home. She went to private Christian schools and generally knew the Bible pretty well. She made a profession of faith and was baptized as a child. She even married her high school sweetheart, but they weren't fully prepared for marriage and things got hard quick. Her husband started having affairs and her pain eventually turned to self-righteousness, to pride, and then to just plain anger and bitterness. She started helping, though, with a youth group in her church and got emotionally involved with a young man in the youth group. The relationship turned physical and he was a minor. They got caught. She got convicted of a felony. She left the church full of shame and anger and started dancing with the demons that were trying to wreck her life and were haunting her, running the bars, hard at scene, running from God. But God kept pursuing her. She eventually moved from her home state of Missouri to northwest Arkansas and had several God encounters with people here which led her to Fellowship Bible Church's Celebrate Recovery Program, 
where she found help and healing and eventually moved into leadership there. She enrolled in JBU's graduate counseling program in 2010, where she met the man who would eventually become her husband. She started part-time as an administrative assistant at the Joshua Center in 2011. Eventually, she landed at New Heights and launched our Celebrate Recovery program in 2013. She and Chad were married in 2011 and gave birth to their only child, Avery, in 2016. They both have incredibly, Angela, come on ahead this way, far-reaching ministries now that have impacted many of you in this room. I bet I could ask for a show of hands. And Angela has even helped plant Celebrate Recoveries in other countries. So I've asked her to relate her story to this text because I couldn't think of anyone closer to Paul's testimony that could communicate as clearly as Angela. So let's welcome her right now because she's got the guts to do this. Thank you, Jim, for that very sobering introduction. I often wish in the past 17 years that I didn't have some of those credentials that make me the spokesperson for people with grave sin or shameful stories. But in my healing journey, what I've also recognized is that my sin actually gives me something really important to say. And so when Jim asked me to share this, I thought, man, I can resonate and relate so tangibly with what Timothy is saying here that I didn't want to miss an opportunity. A quick disclaimer that I want to say that, that right now in our culture, churches are being accused and blamed for hurting people, specifically people in churches who have been in leadership for hurting people. And, and I want to own that. I was someone who was in church and I had influence. And out of my ignorance and foolishness and my own hurt and unhealth, the choices I made hurt people. And I hate that. And so when I get an opportunity to recognize that I was and have been part of a big problem, I also want to try to take an opportunity to own it to be honest, show some of my repentance and redemption, to possibly be part of a solution that includes forgiveness. Before I parallel <clears throat> these verses, 12 through 17, right out of Timothy, I want to explain that no matter how many times I share my story, and in the last 17 years I have shared it a lot, that the grief of my sin still exists in my heart. God does have the power to forgive and forget, but humans actually aren't wired that way. We're we are wired to remember our pain and our sin, and I'm glad because it reminds me what I need to stay away from and where I need to go. And so I want to say also, I don't think everyone should have to share their story at such a public setting at this in front of all the people, not your redemption, not your sin, not your thing. This isn't a challenge for all of you to come on up after me and share the mic, although if you want to, we'd love to hear your story too. But I do feel in James 5.16 that the Bible says that you, could, you should confess your sins one to another to be healed. I do believe that confession parallels healing. And so I strongly encourage you to share at least with another. But I personally feel called to share on a scale that I think was equivalent of the size of influence that I had. And so when the setting and my courage paired, allow me to 
I try to say yes, which is why I only hesitated a little bit when Jim asked me to do this. So I want to go through this passage and share with you not only what Paul shared, but what I am going to share with you as I feel it and hear it in my present day. So let's dive right in to the first verse, 12. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he consider me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. I'm the same. The gratitude I have is huge. I thank Jesus for giving me the courage and the strength to walk up here today and share the ugliest parts of my story with you. I'm grateful, and I'm often confused, actually, that he considers me or any of you consider me trustworthy to even do it, to do anything at all, let alone do something that might point you back to him. Wow. My previous choices should have proven to all of you that I'm actually unworthy of this. And I want to just say, did you guys, were you listening to Jim when he explained some of the things that I did? Because if not, I should probably repeat them just so that you know. I think all the time that my sin disqualifies me from things. The consequences of my choices actually do limit me from things in my life. That's something I have to live with. And yet somehow here I am in front of you getting to share that God's son took my lack of worth and he made it trustworthy in him. Using my sin to qualify me to share with you. My brain and the world says I'm disqualified from doing what I'm doing. But because of Christ, my sin qualifies me. That irony is not lost on me. And I hope it's not lost on you because the enemy would like you to believe that your sin disqualifies you as well. Verse 13, Paul goes on to say, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and in unbelief. And I'm right there like Paul. I want to remind you and, and kind of give you the list so that you can understand fully. Let me try to talk some sense into you. So just like Paul said, I want to give you my disclaimers. Even though I was an adulterer, and an abuser, and a liar, and I was hurting others out of my own unresolved pain and offense, and even though I pled guilty, and I stood in a courtroom in front of a judge, in front of my peers, and in front of the people who I had hurt, and I stood there waiting to get the judgment that I deserved, I was shown mercy. I didn't realize the damage I was doing. I was ignorant, and I was foolish, and I was shown mercy. That's the hope. Paul goes on in 14 and he says, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I'm the same like the song says, if grace is an ocean, then our Lord, your Lord, my Lord, Paul's, Timothy's, poured it out on me so abundantly that I drowned in his grace and I got to experience love like I had never understood before. That moment, the faith in my heart towards Jesus changed, changed from the Jesus I knew in my superficial faith. Good deeds are good deeds without faith. But with faith, good deeds are incredible. So how does this apply to me, to you today? Paul says in, verse, in 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Here is the one part that I do want you to hear that is trustworthy because this part is not mine, but God's. So don't listen 
to anything I've said, only listen to this part because it's God's part. That's how I want to say it to you, that God sent his son to save sinners and I should know. Evidence proves I am the worst. Now I know comparison isn't fun and this isn't necessarily a comparison game. I want to win, but if we stacked our sins against each other, I would wager to say mine are pretty bad. Mine are the worst. And if he can save me, imagine what he can do for you. I can imagine it and it's incredible. I don't stand up here because it's a good time to share everything I'm embarrassed about. No, it's still hard, but I'm compelled to share it. And so in verse 16, Paul explains, for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive life. I ask myself all the time, why me? Why did you show me mercy? Why did I get the grace? For this one reason alone, I, the one with the ugliest sin, was shown mercy so that through me, through my repentance and my redemption and my healing, Jesus Christ himself can show all of you, every one of you, just how unimaginably patient and kind and loving and gracious and forgiving he is if you believe in him and receive what he asks to offer you. It's exactly what Lee is saying. It's a gift you have to first acknowledge. I need it because I'm a sinner. Verse 17, it's the only way Paul can put a period at the end of this giant statement, which is that we're all sinners. Paul now says, the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever, amen. And I have the same amount of excitement and energy. So to the one and only true God, because let me tell you something, there's been a lot of gods in my life. Idolatry, comfort, popularity, fear, good works. Lee and I go back and forth on whether I'm a three on the Enneagram or a eight on the Enneagram. The performer in me has been an idol. There's only one true God and he's eternal and immortal and invisible and so very tangible to me and precious to me. I give him glory and I choose and it is a choice I make to honor him with my story and my life as long as I live and breathe. Can I get an amen? I've always wanted to say that in church. I like, <laughs> I understand so palpably what Paul is saying in Timothy. It reminds me of what Luke shares in the story of a woman who was known in town for her sin. I've been a woman known in town for my sin. I might still be. And she finds out where Jesus is eating and she goes there and she breaks a bottle of perfume on his feet and she's crying and she's creating quite a scene and she's drying his feet with her hair. And Simon's sitting at the table and he has a thought. He doesn't say anything out loud. He just thinks, what is this woman doing? And Jesus reads his mind and he says, two people were owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 dinar and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one would love him more? Seems easy to reply. Simon says, Simon replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. A small amount of love wouldn't give any of us the courage to come up here and share the hardest parts of our story, the parts we want to forget. But my love for my Savior is big. It's immeasurable. People get scared sometimes when they want to come to celebrate recovery. They fear they might have to share parts of their story. 
I don't want to minimize that. I get it. In our culture, there is a stigma attached to failure, to sin, to addiction, to criminal records, to sexual immorality, to divorce, to name a few. So I do understand it's hard. It seems most would prefer if we could just leave all that in the past and live out our freedom in Christ. Sounds lovely. Sounds almost accurate for me. Why not? We don't share the parts of our past at CR because we want to hold it against each other. Dwell in our shame. If you look at me today and you only just met me and you didn't hear that introduction, then you see my joy and my energy and my family and my amazing husband who I have a good marriage with and my daughter who is a miracle in and of herself. And you see me running a ministry and hosting marriage workshops and you hear me speak and you say, oh, I like the way she speaks. Oh, I like her life. If you look at what my life looks like today and I leave my failures in the past where we would all like to leave our failure, then you miss the whole point. You miss all of it. You miss the mercy that was poured out on me and the grace that I was drenched in and the unrequired favor that I've been given out of God's love and kindness. You miss the most important thing, the man, God's own son, who took on all my mistakes and he poured them out on the cross for me so I could have freedom. If I give you the impression at all that my talent or my skill or my knowledge or my energy or my spirituality or my good works without him have gotten me here without my past, then I've misled you. And that would be my biggest failure because there is only one thing that has gotten me here today and that is the love of Jesus Christ, my savior. I'm compelled, compelled to include my past in my present because it tells the true story of whose I am. My fear of rejection is just like yours, by the way. I'm afraid of attack. I'm afraid that one of you will use my sins against me. I'm afraid that the people who I love would be hurt by my pain and my past. My fears want me to leave it all in the ashes too, but I can't because my big love for Jesus, because of the big sins he forgave in my life, it compels me to share with you the truth, just how much God has done in my life in spite of all my failures. God is bigger than my failures. God is bigger than your failures too. Your failure mixed with God's grace writes a beautiful story that deserves to be told. I could talk about this a lot because I'm clearly very passionate about it, but I'm out of time. So if you would like to connect with me more, I'll be over there at the Celebrate Recovery table. I'd love for you to come over and talk to me. I love people. And I hope that you won't worry too much about what other people think if you're standing at my table. Give her a hand. Thank you, Bob. We're giving God a hand too for his grace and his mercy for all of us. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but all can be saved through faith in his atoning sin sacrifice. I'm really glad, selfishly, that God rescued Angela. She's an incredible blessing to New Heights Church and to the people of Northwest Arkansas. And everybody's story's different. I know that most of your stories are not near that dramatic. 
Regardless, I just want to point out something. We don't come to God on our terms. Angela doesn't, Jim doesn't, and you don't. We have to come to God on his terms, and he's written his terms. It's his universe is always say, not ours. We have to play by his rules regardless of whether we want to or not, or whether we fully understand why he did certain things and understand his rules. If we choose not to play by his rules, then we will reap his foreordained consequences. He expressed his deep love for us, again, reminder, by graciously sending his son as an atoning sin sacrifice to appease his own sense of justice, to put it in cosmic terms. He wrote himself into the story again as the great lover who lays down his life to win his bride, to put it in terms of the biblical lover paradigm, if you prefer. Jesus said again, that no one comes to the Father. John recorded it in John 14, 6. No one means no one except through him. Now, if you've already received and embraced, and I know most of you have, this great salvation, then you ought to be spending, as Lee pointed out, and I've pointed out, your lives, your time, your talent, your resources, and your influence, worshiping him by investing in his kingdom and his people. A disciplined life of service is what he asks from us. And as we serve him, we share with those we touch this good news in all kinds of ways. Holding out Jesus' offer of salvation to those around us. A new and better life with him for the few short years we have on this sin-cursed planet. And eternity with him and his people forever. So as we worship him this morning, I'm giving you permission. I'm inviting you to simply lay aside all your sin issues for a moment. Lay aside all your troubles and your struggles and just relish this morning in your salvation. Just enjoy the favor of God. You're more loved and you're more favored than you could ever imagine. And just embrace that love this morning. You're loved by the author of love and life himself. If you don't know him intimately as your Savior, your Redeemer, your Lord, the way Angela knows him and is excited about him, the way I know him, the way Paul knew him, if you don't know him as your lover, your lover and your friend, don't neglect this morning, as the Bible calls it, so great a salvation. Don't neglect it. Find someone on the prayer team this morning and pray in faith. John says 74 times in his gospel, simply believe and live now and forever. So let's stand now and engage our great God in heartfelt public expression of affection for him. If you're on the uh, prayer team, come on up. If you wanna be prayed for for any reason or you wanna be baptized, come tell one to them. But let's engage God in worship.